0: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a conversation with Fenton Johnson, the author of At the Center of All Beauty, Solitude, and the Creative Life. Listen to the story of a Tucsonan who took a DNA test that revealed a sensitive secret about her family. And a pair of personal essays about the changes that living through the pandemic has caused, from emotional turmoil to making major life decisions now instead of later. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. We have all heard or felt one of two sentiments regarding isolation during the COVID-19 pandemic. Either, I can't wait for this to be over, I must be with other people, or solitude suits me. On some level, I benefit from this time alone. Often it's easy to feel one way right after the other. Exploring solitude and the space it gives us to connect with our thoughts is the focus of at the center of all beauty, solitude and the creative life. Author and University of Arizona Professor Emeritus Fenton Johnson has written about this subject before from a personal place. But his new work looks at how some of our greatest artists and thinkers, among them Henry David Thoreau, Emily Dickinson, Cezanne, and Zora Neale Hurston, how they were all shaped by varying degrees of isolation.
1: One of the interesting, most interesting responses that I anticipated to this uh, Book, which has been in process for a long time is to speak in praise of solitude, is so often interpreted as an attack on society or on marriage or on coupling. One of the responses that I have to that is that, in fact, one of the great revelations of this book to me was that my parents were solitaries, my parents who were married for 42 years small-town life in rural Kentucky, and yet I came to realize that they each created, very deliberately, a space for solitude that was their own space. And I came to believe that the relationships
0: If you go online now, and I'll confess to a somewhat guilty pleasure of mine, Fenton, is the confessions that you can find in Reddit. You'll find a lot of posts from people who, although they are sympathetic to the loss of life and to the loss of livelihood for so many Americans, they still say that from a personal comfort point of view, that the pandemic offers them something. You even hear them go as extreme as, I love the pandemic. I don't want it to end. I'm afraid of having to go back to work. There are a great number of people around the world who do choose a solitary life and don't regret it,
1: yes, and I think that one thing that men do not realize is the way in which the system the measure in which the system is created of for by and about men mm-hmm. and It is not a coincidence that women who I think live better frankly as solitaries in general that's a generalization but who generally live better, they're stronger than men. Um, The movement towards solitude is in some measure driven by that. Once in our culture, in the American culture, in the Western culture, we lived among models of people who lived communally, collectively, in order to seek solitude. I'm speaking, of course, of monasteries and convents. And I had... uh, privilege of growing up very close to the most famous of those monasteries, the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky, and knowing monks my whole life. And I suppose my ideal is that there would be some way in a secular world to reproduce that model of people living in solitude, but also in community.
0: In your newest book, At the Center of All Beauty, you explore the connection between solitude and the creative life. And the chapters are often dedicated to one or more creative entities um, that you explore their career, most of them 20th century figures. And and really, you could say in a way you've put together the all-star team for surviving the pandemic. One chapter that stood out to me was Eudora Welty. Um, you talk about briefly getting to meet her when she spoke at your college and a question that a classmate asked her on stage that the answer has stayed with you all these years. And I I don't know why, but that was a moment that riveted me to the page. I found that very profound. Can you tell us that story quickly?
1: Sure. Eudora Welty had come to speak to an undergraduate class at um, Stanford. I was a Stegner fellow there. And I attended the class because uh, I admired her so much. And... um, Hand and said, uh, Miss Welty, how is it that you are able to write so eloquently about love when you have never married? And there was a pause, and uh, Miss Welty said uh, very simply and powerfully, um, I have known love. I've been lucky in love. All the people who influence me, I-, I could have chosen other people, of course. Why did I choose these people? These people chose me when I was writing about them. These creative. Call um, solitaries. I literally felt their uh, voice uh, speaking to me saying, Yes, <laughs> finally somebody has gotten me right because so many of them had been criticized, uh, Walt Whitman and Emily Dickinson in particular, um, under the assumption that somehow. You know, they had longed for uh, marriage and were deeply unhappy because they were not able to achieve that in their lifetimes. And it's absolutely not true. It's totally not true. They both turned down multiple offers of marriage. It was just a lot of fun to choose these people. Nina Simone and Rod McEwen I mean, who would have thought Nina Simone and Rod McEwen had anything to do with each other? And who would have thought that Rod McEwen, the poet everyone loved to hate, turns out to be a really interesting and extraordinary character. Still maybe not such a great poet, but still a a really fascinating man.
0: What I'd like to share with you, Fenton, is uh, something that I've felt for a long time and that comes up again in your book. I think you make a very valuable case for this as being um, something that we need to consider bringing back into our culture, and that is alternative ways of being happy.
1: We have a society in which We allow everybody to fall through the holes in the net. If you're not spending and making money, you are useless. So that's what we need to work on changing. And my idea for that is friendship. We devalue friendship as a necessary quality in our lives. Friends are decorations to the married couple rather than essential aspects of their lives. And we're the first, as you just pointed out, we're virtually the first society that would make
0: If you would like to hear more of this conversation, visit the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Fenton Johnson is the author of At the Center of All Beauty Solitude and the Creative Life, published by Norton. In recent years, millions of people with questions about their ancestry have taken DNA tests, hoping to use modern science to divine a little about both their past and their future. For one Tucson resident, a DNA test she took for medical reasons opened up a surprising situation that left her with more questions than answers. But as Tony Paniagua reports, it's also
2: created a chance for healing and a new sense of family. Judy Ben Asher is a filmmaker and documentarian from Tucson. She's curious about the world and its people and seizes opportunities to learn more about them, whether she's living in our neighboring state of California or visiting distant lands.
3: I graduated high school and joined the Israeli Army, and then I, I'm um, as a volunteer, and then I moved to Jamaica and uh, moved to LA for acting and directing and film, and film has, has been my baby, and it's been great.
2: In 2011, she got married to the person she describes as the man of her dreams.
3: My husband is one of the funniest people on the planet, so I'm blessed that I have someone who makes me laugh on a daily basis at my house.
2: (laughs) Things were coming together well for Judy that year, but two days after her wedding, her mother was diagnosed with late-stage ovarian cancer.
3: I knew something was the matter with her for about nine months or so before, but we couldn't figure it out.
2: Judy's mother passed away in 2014.
3: My mom was one of the kindest human beings on the planet, honestly, very loving and um, she was so kind and she was so thoughtful.
2: Later, in January of 2017, Judy decided it would be a good idea to get a DNA test to learn more about any possible predisposition she might have to cancer or other conditions. This was scientific exploration now, not cultural or geographic.
3: I took the DNA test mainly at my naturopath urging because we were having a lot of trouble between a naturopath and my medical doctor and my integrative medical doctor really pinpointing where everything was stemming from. And that was going to give me a little more insight into um, family history to see if there was something going on in there that we were not finding. So it's sort of a deeper dive into your health history. I did get a lot more than I bargained for.
2: Judy found it odd that the results indicated matches for people on one side of the family, but not the other. That could have been because those family members had not taken the 23andMe DNA test, so she started asking around and encouraging them to do so.
3: I kept explaining how cool it is and how much you can learn about your family's history from so far back. And what I stumbled onto is that I am actually not even related to my dad. I had no one on my father's side.
2: But other people did come up as relatives, a man and his three sons who had lived near Judy and her family in the 1960s and 70s. Her mother had had an affair with her father.
3: I am an Arnoff. So the Arnos were my family friends. They all moved from Buffalo, New York, with my parents um, to sons, And they had three kids. We had four kids, so we played with them all the time. And they were really funny and really kind and right down the street from us. So we just spent so much time with them growing up.
2: It became clear that the man she had called father while growing up was not related to her biologically.
3: It is such a ripple effect of what happens in your body, in your mind, and in your family. Coming from that one moment, it sort of ignites this ripple effect of heightened emotion
2: Things have settled since the revelation. The man who raised Judy as his daughter is still around, but Judy wishes her biological parents were also alive so she could talk to them. However, she says she's not judging anyone, neither her mother nor her biological father.
3: Who I loved, He was so kind and treated me with such love. But he was like that with everybody. He was a really great man. I I would love to have a conversation.
2: (laughs) But she is taking this opportunity to work on a project she calls Truth Seeker. She knows there are many other people in similar situations, and she hopes to provide them with some assistance.
3: As an adult child, it's tricky to navigate these waters, and so grateful I've been doing this as part of a film, because I can, I can document what's happening so that other people in my position will have sort of a roadmap, because we really don't have one. And my mission in life is to create a space for community to heal. Anybody who's having an identity-level trauma, because this is trauma when this happens. And it's not just trauma to us, the people that discover their DNA. It's traumatic for everyone.
2: That healing, Judy says, has been happening in her life, even as her perception of family has expanded. She has her original siblings, plus three new brothers whom she already knew well as childhood friends. And what about a father? She says there are two of them that she loves and respects. She decided to move to Tucson to help the man who raised her and be by his side. His 89th birthday is next month.
3: He said, I knew they had an affair. I didn't know you weren't my daughter.
2: Judy Ben-Asher hopes to have her documentary film, Truth Seeker, completed this year. She's also working on a podcast of the same name. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Tony Paniagua.
0: Right now, many of us are looking forward to what the new normal might bring. I feel I can safely say that parts of our current normal are isolation fatigue, erratic sleep, and emotional mood swings. Our next storyteller, Danny Cropper, spent the last eight weeks of her final year in college in quarantine at her parents' house in Gold Canyon. During that time, she recorded an audio journal, and here are some excerpts. I read that we're, we really should be also cleaning our bags off, like, once we're done. I mean, we probably should be doing that anyway.
4: That's my sister Kendall and my brother-in-law Alec on a FaceTime call on March 31st. Not only is this my current way of talking to them face-to-face, but our conversations now include deciding if we should disinfect grocery bags and whether we should leave packages outside for 24 hours. And yes, the exciting and now monumental discovery of hand sanitizer underneath their kitchen sink.
5: We have a whole bottle. We have a whole
4: <laughs> set for life. Oh, nice. I filled up my little Now that I don't go to class anymore, I wake up each morning, usually way later than I should, sit outside with some coffee, do some homework, jump on Zoom every now and then, eat dinner and fall asleep anywhere from two AM to four AM. Then I wake up and do it all over again. One thing I've been reminded of during all of this is how possible it is to experience a range of emotions all at once. And when you try to document yourself during a pandemic, you're bound to capture more than one of them. <coughs> okay,
5: I promised that I coughed away from my microphone um, and I will definitely be sure to wash my hands. It is approximately 3.54 a.m. March 26th. And one person in particular that I'm really missing is my grandma, Um, my mom's mom. And I have been unable to see her for quite some time, specifically because I am sick myself. And right before my cold got bad, Um, And right before this whole thing really blew up, my grandma came over here for dinner. And my mom, just a little bit earlier in the day, had said something like, yeah, I don't think we should really be hugging our grandparents. I think my symptoms were so mild, I didn't even think I had anything at that point. So I gave her a hug. And... A couple days later, I just remember feeling so sick. I just got so scared all of a sudden. I immediately started playing out the worst in my head. And the reason I started freaking out a bit is because my mind immediately went back to hugging my grandma.
4: That was one of the first days that this all started sinking in for me. As soon as my mind went to that place, I just felt anxious, and scared, and upset with myself. I'm not sick anymore, and my grandma's okay, but there was another night in March when I couldn't sleep, and I found myself just reflecting on everything again. This is sort of where the whole range of emotions thing comes in. So, it is day blank in quarantine. I have officially lost count. I was listening to my recording so far, and I felt like... I was depressing myself, and I don't want to depress anyone who hears this. I think feelings of sadness and fear and anxiety are real and valid, but I also think it's important to give credit to the good times and the laughs and the little things that still make us happy, especially if we're lucky enough to still have those. Right now, I am thankful for my home and my family. Um, I'm thankful that they're safe and healthy. I'm thankful for my dogs and funny movies. I am thankful for food to eat and weather that makes us want to be outside. I'm thankful for U of A, and right now, I'm thankful for music.
5: You tell me life can teach you how to live it if you stick it out. You free yourself from all the blame. Ignoring all those places of pain.
4: I wish this song is called Just Life, and I've been listening to it over and over and watching this lyric video for it that just flashes all of these different images and clips of life. Like sea turtles swimming in the ocean and marathon runners and people holding hands and dancing at concerts or little kids playing and a whale just flying out of the water. And I think I'm so hooked on this song right now because I just want us to be able to get back to these moments, to... Holding hands and dancing and swimming in the ocean and just getting to be with each other. I'm Danny Cropper.
0: Danny Cropper graduated earlier this month with her degree in journalism. While her essay reflected what it's like to be quarantined at home, for others, that's not an option. Next, we'll hear from Elisa Ivanitskaya, the assistant producer of this show. She's a Fulbright scholar from Russia, studying at the U of A, who was supposed to return home after graduation. But with international air travel halted during the pandemic, she's been forced to make other plans.
6: With states reopening, a sense of normalcy is returning to life. At least that's what I want to believe. But I can't. As long as I can't return home, the pandemic will continue for me. The first email from my Fulbright advisor came on March 14th. The state of emergency had already been declared in the US. So all American students abroad, some of them in Russia, were advised to fly home. I was given a choice. If you have concerns about your safety and welfare and want to return to your home country, you are free to do so. But the message continued. You should weigh several factors, including availability and cost of return airfare, travel delays, or possible quarantine in your country. Should I stay or should I go? That day in March, the number of confirmed cases in the U.S., was 1,634. In Russia, it was only 34. Both countries were canceling events and promoting social distancing with new measures introduced every day. Some of my friends preferred to go. Alexey, a composer who studied in the Midwest, flew to St. Petersburg a week after this email from Fulbright. His campus was closing, and students were asked to leave the dorms. Elena, an English teacher from Michigan, was afraid that she would not be able to return home in May, so she decided to go immediately, even though for her it meant two weeks of quarantine upon arrival. She rented an apartment in her hometown in Russia to stay separate from her family. What options did I have? My classes were online, but I didn't feel I could go to Russia at the time. I had an internship in the US and an apartment lease till the end of May. In Russia, I had no place to live and very limited opportunities to find a job during the pandemic. Also in March, I hoped that the pandemic would be over by the end of May. There were other bonuses to staying here. The blue skies and blooming cacti of Tucson were better than the melting snow and grey sky of Moscow. So I stayed motivated by my self-interest. But during the pandemic, I've learned something about altruism. Being a foreigner in the US gave me a unique look at two societies. Usually when something bad happens in my home community, I feel so involved and overwhelmed that I notice only struggles and suffering and feel powerless. Good deeds, glimpses of hope are out of my focus. But this spring... I've seen not only people losing jobs, but also landlords who sent out letters offering rent assistance. People who donated masks, food, and money to support those in need. Neighbors who left a roll of toilet paper, or even once a bag of apples left on campus for others to take. The same has happened in Russia. My friends donate money and feed the doctors who fight the pandemic. They support local businesses and deliver food to their senior neighbors. The pandemic is not only shared trauma, but also a shared experience of solidarity and kindness, whether in Moscow or here in Tucson. For Arizona Spotlight, I am Alisa Ivanitskaya.
0: Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. Our interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Elisa Ivanitskaya. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.